My name is Stacy Sargent Lawton, and I'm a hospital chaplain. Each week on this podcast, a few fellow chaplains will join me to discuss an episode or two of the great TV hospital drama, ER, from our unique perspectives as spiritual caregivers. This is ER Chaplains Watching ER. Father, please protect my soul. Hi, and welcome to another great episode of ER Chaplains Watching ER. I'm your host, Stacey Sargent Lawton, and with me tonight, I've got a few other great ER chaplains to talk about these two episodes. Sarah Jane Moran. Hello. Carrie Walker-Nettles. Hi. And Deborah Gaddis-Reeves. Hello. So we'll start things off by talking about episode six which is titled Chicago Heat, Sarah Jane with the Bullet. Dr. Green's wife is out of town again and has called in on his day off because the neighboring hospitals can't take their usual patients. Meanwhile, the air conditioning is out at Cook County, leaving everyone in the episode dripping sweat and fighting irritation. Dr. Green goes into work with his young daughter, Rachel, who is curious and attentive to everything around her in the ER. Doug Ross's first patient is a little girl named Kanisha who comes in cyanotic with fever and poisoning symptoms. We later find out she has overdosed on her older sister's stash of cocaine. Dr. Ross's privilege is once again an issue as he deals with the African-American father and daughters. A pizza delivery boy, believing he has been stabbed, crashes through the ER doors. The staff deadpans, did somebody order a pizza? The stab wound turns out to be superficial. Arthur, a recurring alcoholic character, comes in passed out drunk. The team bets on his blood alcohol level, and then one of the nurses gives him a makeover. Susan's big sister, Chloe, an addict, is kicked out of her apartment. Their mother refuses to take her in, and she comes to Dr. Lewis for help. Despite Dr. Lewis's ability to discern the motives of most of her patients, she is emotionally overpowered by Chloe and gives her the keys to her apartment. Chloe steals her credit card, hawks her television, and leaves the stove burning. Div, the hospital psychiatrist who is dating Dr. Lewis, doesn't want to get involved, but does attempt to comfort Susan. Ivan, the liquor store owner who has been shot multiple times, buys a gun and exacts revenge on his burglar, who turns out to be a 14-year-old black boy. Ivan shoots him in the back multiple times. Benton is involved in the whole process and feels emotional ties to both the boy and Ivan. The boy dies in surgery despite heroic efforts, and Dr. Benton informs Ivan, who will be tracked by the police. Little Rachel Green asks Dr. Benton, why aren't you crying about the boy that died? He replies that he is in his heart. Monty, an HIV-positive man, has a seizure in the waiting room, which leads to a head injury. He claims to be unable to afford bus fare to get to the clinic for his life-saving medication. Dr. Ross and Nurse Hathaway continue their courtship dance around one another. Doug apologizes to her and Taglieri for his drunken antics last episode. Taglieri wants Carol to move in with him, while they perform a shoulder relocation on a patient. She does not want to commit. A pharmaceutical rep, Linda, flirts with the entire staff of the ER, but then settles her attention on Doug Ross. The AC comes back on at the end of the episode. Rachel, Green's daughter, asks him about death after seeing the gunshot victim on the table. She asks him, if I got sick, you wouldn't let me die, would you? Thank you, Sarah Jane. So, a lot going on in this episode. Um, 
the heat just um, reminded me of a day that in our ER when the air conditioning went out. And so I was sort of feeling that heat. Um, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. And so that was a really miserable day, no matter how many fans they had on. And I could really relate when I think Hale, one of the nurses in this episode, says, when it gets this hot, people just lose their minds. And that is really true. And then the fact that when Dr. Green and his daughter come in, the first thing they see is a dead guy in the hall. And <laughs> it's even worse than normal because it's so hot. It just, it just made me think gross thoughts. But also, do they not have a morgue in this hospital? Like, I can't imagine the county hospital not having its own morgue. But. Well, we talked about that in last episode, that the family had to try and ID the, the boy in the last couple of episodes just in, like, the x-ray reading room. Right. And I wondered, like, how do they handle their bodies and where do they go and what's their space issue? At both the hospitals I've worked in. Yeah, I'm really shocked that they don't have their own morgue. But. but as many people as they have lining the halls like that, um, I guess specifically the live ones, makes me <laughs> wonder about their patient satisfaction scores. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if they didn't have HIPAA back then, surely they don't have patient satisfaction. <laughs> Yeah, if you make it out alive, you're satisfied enough for them. <laughs> so, um, this, the part of the storyline with Rachel coming in to work with uh, Mark, on one hand, I totally get that because I have had um, child care snafus myself. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, never uh, to the point where I had to bring my small child to the ER, it's really no place for a child. No. <laughs> um, and, you know, throughout this, the storyline, they kind of illustrate the ways that it's no place for a child. Um, but the thing that I did love about this storyline was uh, her presence there in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the life and death issues, the... the um, you know, emergency interventions and all of this stuff reminded me of my, um, some of the deliberative theology that I've focused on in the past as um, the child as a sacrament, Mm -hmm. the child as a means of grace. So as she pops in and out of these other storylines, she calls us to remember that um, not only is this not a place for a child, but um, but childlike curiosity and wonder um, and even fear or hope um, are all present throughout all of those other stories that are interweaving um, hers. And then particularly when she shows up for folks like Benton asking these significant life and death questions, and calling them out of their sort of rote day in, day in, we saved another one, we lost another one, to calling them back to their own humanity. Mm-hmm. So I appreciated Rachel's presence for that means of grace moment. Well, Rachel's interaction with Nisha are, are really precious. Yeah. Their means of grace as well, because of the honesty and the purity with which they dialogue with each other, even though they never talk about the fact why the teacher is there. 
they talk about their families, talk about the meanings in their lives and their favorite toys. Those sweet connections. Yeah, I really liked the way this episode dealt so much with kids um, through those two, Kanisha and Rachel. And at one point, the camera gives us Kanisha's point of view um, when she's being examined. And it's just all these big, giant grown-ups just hovering over her, moving around her, doing things to her, not really talking to her at all, just talking about her over her. Um, Occasionally, some of them stop and smile at her. But they're just sort of there, and, and she just, you know, you get that sense of how big and scary it all seems and how distant from her it all seems. And the fact that her family is out in the waiting room, and I'm just thinking, you know, could we not have a parent in there with her for this? I don't see any reason why her dad couldn't have been there. Um, so that was really jarring for me. I made that well, same note. Ostensibly, you know, they're keeping them separated because of their concern that Um, her ingesting cocaine is his um, neglect. Right, but at this point, they didn't even know that. Right, right. And even still, you know, when you haven't had enough time to determine, to call in investigators or whatnot, you could still have the parental figure there, and that contact would still be supervised because of the other staff tending to them. Yeah. Yeah, this, when they were examining her, they were still thinking it was because of her, apparently she was born with like a heart condition, and so they were thinking it was something to do with that um, before they found the drugs in her system. I pretty much had the storyline figured out as soon as we met the, uh, the older daughter. Because of her, she had no concern for what was going on. All she was concerned about getting the money for the machine to get like a sugary soda. That made me think, cravings of some kind. And she's got an altered state. Her empathy's not there. There's something going on. And it was obviously obvious that she and her father were close. And so you didn't, you know, know every last detail. But I pretty much, I, I, I guess that maybe they were trying to have us kind of know what was going on so that we could develop our own thoughts as, as we went on and to be able to I was thinking, too, you reminded me that we often see when you're working with families where there's more than one child and one child perhaps was injured and it could have been at the accidental hand of another one. It's a really hard place to maneuver as a chaplain because it's such an awkward place for the parent to know where to be or how to be when one child has possibly inflicted pain on another child when you certainly love them both. And it's, gosh, it's a struggle. Has anybody had that experience in thinking of something in your mind right now? Absolutely. We have uh, frequently at the Children's Center children who have not accidentally hurt their sibling like you can easily see in the ER, but we have children who have intentionally perpetrated on their sibling, um, and often we see parents uh, caught in one of several kinds of, of dilemmas. There's the parent who cannot quite wrap their mind around the fact that um, one of their children did this, um, and then you have the other parents who are 
are believing and supportive of the victim. And at the same time, they still have to figure out a way to be parent to the offending child as well. Um, and, you know, DSS will come in and help them come up with a, a safety plan to keep the kids um, apart for as long as they need to. Um, that's it's a really tough place for parents to be who um, want to live and support both their children. And they're trying to figure out a whole new way to do that in a way that keeps everybody safe. Yeah, and I'm suspecting that the, the father, the character in this um, episode, probably knew that the cocaine came from the older daughter, you know, and then once he heard it was cocaine, you know, the mom. I suspect you're right. He did not jump to defend himself or offer alternative narratives, which made me think that he kind of knew um, that it was his other daughter. Yeah, I think in some ways that is, gives us a glimpse of, of um, the divine, too, to think about God having to love all of us when we hurt one another and... <laughs> you know, have hateful expressions and things like that. I mean, it's just a glimpse of that. Certainly way more complicated, I'm sure, and I don't even pretend to understand it. But I just know that when I witnessed it uh, as an accident in the ER, that it makes me feel all kinds of uh, anxiety as far as, like, how do you support a parent in that who is trying to love two children equally in a time when, you know, one has inflicted that kind of pain on another. It's such a tough situation. Certainly one that I've struggled with in the past. I remember a particular situation that I was trying to deal with. There was a very small child, maybe, maybe six, um, and the family was trying to deal with police questioning things that were going on with other members of the family. Anyway, basically, the it fell to me to, to sit with this particular child. It was very late at night, and there was really no one else. There were no advocates. Um, there weren't any other. And uh, they, they kept asking me, don't you have anything for, for her to do? And I kept thinking, what she's supposed to do? I mean, she's supposed to focus on a puzzle or something when there's someone dying in the other room? Um, what, but what I ended up having, you know, with, I, I served in a, in a Catholic hospital, and I had a, um, I had a rosary in my pocket because I carried them around because people would request them. They were specifically Catholic. And the one thing that I noticed about her is that she had very nervous hands this whole time, so I gave her the rosary so that she had something tangible. And we talked about what it meant, that it was used for prayers, and who the characters on it were, that it was, that it was Mary and Jesus. And... Um, she didn't go into anything theologically deep, but um, she really, you know, held on to that figuratively and uh, physically and spiritually. Um, and, and she talked to me a little bit about things that mattered and things that didn't. Uh, I let her take it home. I had I had hesitations, I guess, at first. Like, is 
just disrespecting, you know, the rosary to let a child, you know, have it as, as something to hold and touch as a talisman. But I finally decided that no, that was that was an honoring of, of what it represented and that God was there in that object. So. And that's perhaps a means of grace to you, that rosary. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, I felt for this father so much. I mean, what an awful situation he's in all the way around that, you know, his wife died. I think it's like over a year ago, it sounds like. Um, And so he's left with these two girls on his own and parenting a teenager under any circumstances is hard, but, you know, the, his the oldest daughter had apparently just had a fight with her mom not long before the mom died and never got a chance to, you know, make peace with her mother and just is carrying all this guilt around from that, I'm sure. And so the drugs are just a a means of coping for her right now. And I think he doesn't know how to reach her. That's just, oh, it just broke my heart for him. And then for him to be accused of, you know, being a drug user and putting his youngest daughter in danger by the doctor and having DSS come into the situation and everything. It was just all around bad. Yeah, I, you um, guys that know ER so much better than I do, I think I remember in this episode, he, uh, this father asked uh, Doug if he had, if he's a father. And doesn't he say he has a son? Yes, he has a but son that he's estranged from, basically. Okay. Yeah, uh, he fathered a child but has no contact with that child. Mm. So I didn't know that yet, right? Right, this uh, is the first we've heard of it. it. Kind of foreshadowing of more information, I guess. But, okay. Yeah. Thank you, ladies. <laughs> now I know what to look forward to in these next episodes, but I was like, what? I haven't, <laughs> I haven't seen that child yet. Well, and this, this, this storyline is another means to deal with um Doug Ross privilege, and you know, in the end, despite the fact that he's been um, really impatient and ignorant um, to start with, he finally does have that sit-down time with the father, and here's the whole story. And just like that other episode where he borrows forty dollars to buy the medicine. So again, he ends up looking like a hero. But really, I, I think we should focus more on the father and his situation. Well, you know me and Doug Ross. I have mixed feelings. (laughs) I share those, Sarah Jane, because this is the second time now that they've shown us if he would just check his assumptions, which is what we're taught to do. Um, I mean, we're all human. We all have our biases and um, and, and the things that kind of get to us and and, um, push our buttons a little more than others. Um, and it would seem that uh, for Doug Ross, what he reads as, um, uh, you know, healthcare neglect or um, or this neglect uh, that led to a small child overdosing um, is obviously a sensitive issue for him. However, he always jumps straight to that conclusion rather than showing up as the healthcare provider first. Um, and listening to the stories of the folks. Um, if he would do that in the first place, it would improve his ability to give health care overall. Yeah, absolutely. And 
his nurse, Connie, was really brave in confronting him about that. And she doesn't do it in front of the father, but after she witnesses an interaction between Dr. Ross and the father, she, you know, asks him, would you feel the same way if it were, basically, if it were a white girl from an upper-class neighborhood, would you be treating her father this way? You know, would you be making these same assumptions? And so she challenges him on that and says, how about if we have the dad and the sister both drug tested and then we can get some facts instead of just working from assumptions here? Yes, it is worth noting that both of the families, both of the parents, that he jumped to conclusions around were both African-American families and African-American caregivers. So. Yeah. Well, and that's also transitioning to the story about Ivan. That comes up again. Um, yes. Ivan, and, and Benton has a lot of um, a lot of sympathy for Ivan in the situation until he realizes that this child was shot in the back multiple times and was unarmed at the time. Then mm-hmm. suddenly it's a different situation. And and Ivan is a sympathetic character pretty much the whole time because of his um, sense of dismay and um, staying there to, to see the results all the way through. But um, and, and you do feel like in the end that he's going to you know, face the consequences and learn from them. But it's really hard to watch. Yeah, and I just wondered if this even was the same kid that had robbed his store. You know, he jumped to that conclusion and um, and just reacted on that and then ended up you know, shooting an unarmed kid in the back that may, have, may or may not have even been the same kid, but just because he had become so fearful after his store was robbed and he was shot previously, um, and it just... How, how relevant is that? Oh, that? Yes, very relevant. Right. I thought that same thing. It's like this was a storyline back in the 90s, and it's like it was almost like turning on the TV and watching the evening news. You know, we see it so often now. Yeah. And we see it play out in the ER over and over and over again. I mean, God, how many gunshot wounds do we see coming through the ERs? That reminds me of a case that um, I worked after the fact. Uh, and it wasn't a gunshot wound, but it, it was um, a racial bias issue when um, the 20-something-year-old uh, who had, um, oh gosh, it's just left me. Um, what is the very painful chronic illness that is disproportionately something African-Americans experience? Sickle cell. Thank you. Sickle cell. So he did suffer from sickle cell, and he had this long-time um, relationship with the um, the PT mock staff, right? And they were continuing to treat him because that's like a nationwide best practices thing. They're up to um, has that level of expertise. Well, he's a tw- like 20, maybe 19. I can't remember exactly, but he comes into um, the ER in the middle of the night with excruciating pain and he needs emergency help and what happened was 26-ish hours later after he's been um, hanging out in a bed in the ER waiting for someone to give him some pain meds um, 
you know, the rest of the story unfolds and, and someone comes along and realizes, oh, this is our, our patient. We treat him all the time. Why would you not send, you know? And, you know, simply checking his records. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's in Epic. So simply looking to see that he has a legitimate need and he's not some, you know, drug-seeking youth off the street. Um, and when you say that, you mean he's in the computer system. Epic is the computer system. Oh, yes. yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. How did everyone feel about um, Arthur's makeover? Oh, he was a totally different person, wasn't he? <laughs> Again, it was sort of a a case of assumptions getting, you know, leading to bad, I don't know, bad assumptions getting flipped on their heads, I guess. Everybody just sort of assumed that he's this this homeless guy, you know, that he could never look that way and be that presentable. But if, if that guy in, in a suit and showered and freshly shaved came in for a job interview, he might actually get it. <laughs> But do we ever hear that he actually wants this? That's what I'm wondering. If he comes in so drunk that he's basically passed out, like I'm assuming that the nurse, because I know her well enough now, that she would probably ask permission before she spent all this time. But I'm really hoping that this was something that he wanted because Uh we never really got to hear from him. Now now you're talking about consent. (laughs) I don't know why or how in the ER. I agree, Sarah Jane. I thought that was really weird. I was trying to figure out. I understand the gallows humor of, of the, the blood alcohol level, but, but that seemed to be taking it a bit far for me because that was more personal. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we never really do hear from him at all. I don't think that we hear him speak <laughs> a single word. But he's he's been on he's been in the ER at least two or three other times. Right. And each time he's just in a wheelchair, just so drunk that basically they need to to check him out to make sure that he's gonna be okay and sober up. Yeah, and I kind of got the impression that he comes there with the assumption that they're gonna take care of him and clean him up and, you know, at least he'll get some um, hygiene care while he's there. But maybe I just read into that. Well, more so, more so than getting arrested and, you know, put in a cell overnight. Yeah. It's. A, I mean, I can see that, yeah, you would read in that perhaps he saw that as instinctually a safe place mm-hmm. to be able to because after all, being drunk on the street can be very dangerous. No doubt. I just wonder I if we're ever going to come back to him. I don't know if we will or not. Yeah, I don't think so. I'm trying to remember if we see him again. I don't think we do. So speaking of boundaries, let's let's uh, move on to Chloe. Huh. Oh. And speaking of addiction. Yeah. Mm. 
I don't know that we're ever told specifically what it is that she's addicted to or what her drug of choice is. Um, she, she's drunk the, the times that we see her, but the way that she's selling things, I would assume that it's probably heroin. That was what I assumed, but they never said specifically. Well, and it's interesting. I like the fact that they chose Susan, who she is not afraid to go up against um, her superiors in uh, the hospital system. She's not afraid to sit in front of an entire table of colleagues who are calling her decisions into question. Um, so she has this really, you know, tough, no-nonsense, I'm not going to take crap off of anybody kind of um personality that just seems to be the way that she's showing up in the world and at the same time she has this sister that she continues to let um kind of walk all over her so it's um a pretty accurate I think mm -hmm. illustration of the way that those who are closest to us um have these kinds of powerful effects over us. And, that, and it takes a lot of work, going back to what you were saying, Sarah, about boundaries. It takes a lot of work to learn how to um, negotiate those kinds of relationships that are um, manipulative or abusive and closest to us all at the same time. And you can tell that she's trying. She's oh, not yeah. that she doesn't struggle. You can see the struggle routinely throughout the whole episode as she tries to make decisions regarding her sister. You can also see the fear on her face yeah. um, of all the unknowns that might be involved. I also felt this offered a glimpse into why we often say that she is acting like a chaplain in addition to being a physician. She spends that time sometimes talking to people more than some of the other doctors and it kind of gives us a glimpse into that, that she comes from this. You know, she she has experienced that in her own home, and um, that, that affects who we are and how we care for others. There's probably some transference even in, in the way that she cares, which has been a healthy way for We learn from our weaknesses, too, and, you know, in some ways they've become valuable for her care of others. Yeah. Okay, as we wrap up talking about this episode, um, does anybody have any final thoughts or favorite moments from this one? I love how at the end, right when the air conditioner comes back on, it starts to rain. <laughs> that irony is just really beautiful that know that the rain is coming and there's steam coming off the sidewalks it's, it's just like this soothing ball and I I find it to be a really spiritual touch mm -hmm. um I really like the scene in the doctor's lounge with Rachel um when she is asking about the the kid with the gunshot wound and um, asks, you know, Dr. Benton if he died, which he did die in surgery. And Dr. Benton kind of looks at Mark, um, her father, for permission, I guess, to be honest with her. And um, and Mark just handles it really well. 
and and does let her know that yes, this patient died, that we can't always save everybody who comes into the hospital. Um, she asks if his mommy will be sad, and Mark says yes, she will. And then she asks Peter if he's sad, and he says that yes, he is in his heart. And um, I just I really was impressed by how they handled that. Sometimes we try to protect children from things like that so often and it would have been really easy to just say oh no he's fine he went home you know but they um they were honest with her about that which I really appreciated anyone else okay um we will take a short break and we'll be back to talk about episode seven in just a moment And we're back. Episode 7 is titled Another Perfect Day. And here to recap it for us is Deborah. Just to remind you, our listeners, I am the least knowledgeable about ER. So I'm going to really try to keep up with all of this going on and the characters and everything. So give me grace, all of you people out there who love Chaplin. (laughs) All right, here we go. So we're starting this perfect day off at 6. 30 or 0630 as we're writing that in our um, chart. Okay, so it opens with a very likable character, patient Patrick wearing a helmet. He fell off of a ladder and then um, he falls off of a stool, actually. Um, Susan Lewis ends up providing care to him with the help of uh, Nurse Hathaway, but he's throughout our episode, and he is um, a real delight. He represents a lot of those patients in the ER that keep us going and make our job very enjoyable. Um, We move on to a 20-year-old stabbing victim who comes in with a stab to the neck, and um, are we okay? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm reading your, I'm sorry, could you hear me? Yes. Oh, okay. Sorry. Okay, we come in with a 20-year-old stabbing victim, and he has been stabbed to the neck. They attempt to intubate him and actually say that um, they, one minute before he's even brain dead, they're actually able to trach him and ventilate him. The airway is established off to the OR, and all this happens very quickly. Benton received affirmation from the chief of surgery and a reminder that uh, he will have his fellowship interview later that day. That gives him a boost of confidence. We move on to a gang member, as he's referred to as. It's a boy with a laceration, and the nurse gives this patient to Benton. Uh, However, he turns around very quickly and passes this patient off to Carter. While Carter's providing care, the patient attempts to pick his handcuffs, the lock actually, with a tool from Carter's coat. Uh, we later learned that the, arm, 
the nurse actually knows this teen, and he re- she really wanted Benton to provide the care to him and at the same time talk to him about life choices. Um, it, it, his name is Mookie, and we learned that he's, um, you know, somebody that has potential, thankfully, from the nurse who recognizes that. And um, as a, uh, an interesting twist, she makes Benton the supervisor of this boy who they um, assigned to a 50 kids intern program. And um, it, it, so we perhaps will see them later in a relationship. Um, we move on to our favorite character that like the psych doctor did oh my goodness he you know just presents himself as a real prick I mean he has no <laughs> compassion and you know he comes in he's just complaining about how he's had five admissions two attempted suicides etc and all before lunch like wow you know he's just really annoying but he's in there and we have to deal with him and um so we come up with um Oh, another personal storyline where we have John who continues to ask Carol to move in with him. And um, in the midst of all this, we have some excitement with a 12-year-old lake boat um, accident victim comes in unconscious. He was caught under the water in wreckage. And, of course, his parents are there watching outside. He's got a low heart rate. And uh, I think in the midst of all of the excitement somebody refers to the parents as those people and asks that they be removed from the hall uh nurse connie does oblige and and move the parents somewhere luckily they are able to stabilize him this is a a great effort between uh dr ross and nurse carol and um they stabilize him with the aid of paddles and they move him straight to the or they basically refer to this as the seven minute save and they said it, it worked like clockwork. It was it was one of those moments in the ER where you just, you have a lot of adrenaline and it is rewarded. It was a great, great uh, save for them. Carol and Doug celebrate with a passionate kiss. And remember, I just said she had been invited to move in with another guy. Uh, so Benton comes in and does um, say that Carol and Doug worked well together. He added that another 10 minutes and they would have lost the patient. Um, then we come up with Michael Carson. He's a 35-year-old victim of a five-mile-an-hour car accident. But he's comatose, which is extremely uh, strange for such a minor accident. Uh, Carter suspects meningitis, and he ends up doing a lumbar puncture. It was his first one, and they remind us of the C1, do one, teach one motto that we've all heard. Green guides Carter, who completes a perfect lumbar puncture on his very first attempt. This is a very big deal. Uh, let's see. Later on, we move on to Benton's fellowship interview, which I mentioned earlier, and um, he is certainly nervous that that Longworthy is all, or Langworthy is also interviewing, and her uh, interview took a little bit longer than Benton's. His started at 4.20 on this, remember, perfect day. And um, he's just a second-year resident for this Starsville Fellowship, which is, uh, I think, quite a challenge for him. 
but he did receive excellent recommendations and solid achievement. Um, you know, they did say that the fellowship would allow him to study more and do surgical transplant teams and things like that. And but he doesn't really have any activities beyond the ER work. Nothing really extra. So that is a negative for him. Which you know, as we heard, he might be um, supervising this uh, at-risk team. So there's something that could help him in the future, um, even with his own advancement. Uh, Dr. Lewis's sister Chloe shows up again. We talked about her last episode. We learned that it is her birthday through a pretty exciting way, in that there was uh, we heard that there was a motorcycle versus a semi-truck accident. And so when they all run in there to do it, everybody pops out of the ambulance, and it's actually a surprise birthday prank for Susan. But her birthday goes downhill from there because when Chloe shows up to celebrate Susan's birthday, probably wasted on vodka, um, they end up having a pretty severe fight in the ER that escalates into Chloe breaking with her hand, cutting her hand, and then that fantastic psychiatrist Dev shows up. But he he seemed a little bit likable in that moment when he was actually willing to provide her psychological services. Of course, that's odd because you know he's dating her sister. Just keep that in mind. Um, clearly, this ruins her birthday dinner that heard about all day that she's been looking forward to, and um, we then switch to. Carter, who really has had the perfect day. Remember, he uh, had that uh, exciting accomplishment of getting that tr uh, procedure just right, and so he's given a bottle of champagne from Dr. Green. Uh, he then he actually refers to it as a perfect day, and we transition to a meeting of Carter and Susan on the roof, and. Um, it, we end the night that way in Carter offering Dr. Lewis, also known as Susan, champagne. Uh, the lumbar puncture for the patient with meningitis uh, called for a celebration in that he was successful. It also showed a friendly side of Carter with empathy and, and humor and helped him see himself as more of an equal in this moment with a doctor. They had some exchange about referring to each other by first names and that sort of thing. But we certainly, we see that on a day when Susan has had a particular um, difficult time, Carter was able to rise above his um, status that is usually quite beneath her and be a friend. So it was indeed a perfect day for some of them. Thank you, Deb. So to start off, I just have to say, um, Dr. Svetik Div, the psychiatrist, I am super worried about him as I watch this episode for the first time. I'm just recognizing yep. the signs of burnout. Um, for somebody who is in a caregiving profession to be this um, apathetic and rude and 
um, angry, hostile, yeah, with with patients and with fellow staff members. I mean, he's horrible to Malik um, at one point and just seems completely unconcerned about the patients in any way, shape, or form. Um, That's just not normal. And for me, if I were working with him, um, that would definitely be a red flag for signs of burnout for me. And those are the kinds of things that I, when I recognize the beginnings of that in myself, I know that I need to do some self-care. Mm. Sadly, I um, have known psychiatrists like that in my work. Um, they they seem to, they're usually male, and they seem to believe that they are way superior to pretty much everyone else because of their knowledge. And they totally look down on their patients and whatever they're going through. And they make these broad generalizations about all the things that they've, they've had that day. Um, I'm not really sure how to fix that. I've, I've known some lovely ones, too. Don't get me wrong. But um, I would say I, I know a good many that are like that. And I don't know if it could be the signs of burnout or it could just, unfortunately, be his personality. <laughs> and you can also, um, he, he treats Susan very well. Whenever he's relating to her, he sees her as a person. And he's very caring and he's very empathetic. Um, I think that he's correct in not wanting to get involved in the, in the Chloe situation for the first part of the episode. That's, that's a healthy boundary. Um, but because of what Dr. Lewis sees of how he treats other people and talks about other people, I think that she starts to realize that it's not going to work. And that comes through in this episode. They basically all but break up at the end. Which is why I mean, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking that Carter was maybe being a little more than just friendly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> now I'm catching on. <laughs> I was going to say for uh, psychiatrists, uh, in the hospital, in the ER, I don't know if it serves other units too, um, to be so such a prickly person, um, even before we start considering, like, maybe he is probably burnout. I, I'm with you. I think he is. Um, it's especially discouraging. I mean, it's one thing if you have other kinds of doctors who are just not really people persons, because <laughs> Um, they don't often have much contact with clients or patients who are awake or um, who need um, that kind of relatability. Um, so we can just benefit from their expertise and uh, whatever their field is and, and keep going. But a psychiatrist is talking to you about things like beliefs and values and um, it's where you need to have a little or 
classism or maybe a combination of several of those when he is interacting with Malik mm-hmm. um, y'all named that like he you, you talked about having seen arrogant doctors before and there is the level of arrogance I think in the way he um, approaches and, and speaks to Malik but there's also in addition to that this just disdain yes thank you yeah he's just he so dismissive he, he of thinks, him he thinks that that he's totally better than them that what they're doing is totally beneath him and um and that's the way he speaks about his patients as well mm-hmm. they're just numbers and diagnoses they're not you can have all the head knowledge in the world about about mental issues but if you don't have that ability to see them as people then you're going to fail right yeah, and that's why I was thinking this just this can't be his norm. I mean, Susan and he have been dating for several months, and I can't imagine that she would be with someone who was like this all the time, which is why I'm thinking this has got to be him heading to burnout. Right. Would you go into that particular profession if you really had such, such a level of disdain for people? Right. <laughs> Deborah, were you going to say something? I keep cutting off. Sorry, y'all. I'm having terrible connection, so I'm sort of following, but not entirely. Oh, that's okay. Just, just cut this part out, and I'll keep going if I can. <laughs> you really feel for Benton regarding the Soul Starzle Fellowship, because Dr. Langworthy is in there for 70 minutes, and his interview lasts, what, 10? <laughs> yeah. So he's that. he's he's left there. He's left out there the whole time with her in there wondering what they're talking about and then he feels completely inadequate not knowing what to offer when he does go in. I think we've all been there in times of being evaluated. So I really do feel for him because because we do root for him and we know that you know he does have to struggle sometimes as the underdog. Yeah, I always, we have annual evaluations. I mean, I guess most people do in their job, and it it just gets my anxiety up every single year. And um, But a big part of it is that I feel like chaplaincy, it's so hard to quantify what we do, and the person who's evaluating me doesn't get to see what I do. You know, they're not with me when I'm with patients, and um, it's so hard to sort of explain the value of, of what, I do, I feel like, um, so often. So, I don't know. That just brought up a lot of stuff for me when I was watching Peter go through that. Well, that's why we have to work so hard to defend the staff, especially nurses, when they have emotional interactions with patients. Because when we are evaluated and things are quantified down to numbers, Mm -hmm. that's just totally unfair. And so, we have the opportunity to see the ways in which the staff um, helps patients that are, are beyond those numbers statistics mm-hmm. and that is one of one of the reasons that chaplains have to fight so hard for their jobs too yeah. because when these people come in to maybe higher ups come in to evaluate us and we have to defend <laughs> how do you quantify spiritual care that's mm-hmm. that's a great and big question that we were probably always trying to um to add to in our own minds in order to be able to have enough 
you know, pastoral authority to believe in what we're doing. Right. I was just having a conversation with one of my local colleagues here. This was last week where we were talking about how do you quantitatively capture qualitative work? Yes. <laughs> Good and, question. You know, particularly um, in, in my current role where essentially what we've done is draw the spiritual care department into a place that's never had one before. So we're all, you know, I don't have Epic. I don't have a template that Epic comes with that I can either use or, you know, tweak for myself. So we're really kind of just creating this from scratch. And um, and we're running into those challenges of, like, um, you know, my, my colleagues here totally get the value of my work and they see it and they're on board. And at the same time, like, um, the people send the money to fund what we do how do we reflect to them the importance of the work mm-hmm. and that's something that we did as well when when the hospital that I was working at changed over computer systems we had to work very closely with the people who were creating it in order to try and figure out the best way to be able to chart our stuff specifically right. and it came down to we were so worried about trying to convey that we started a, a new movement to try and, and do in between crises, um, we would do as many cold calls as possible to up our numbers. Right. And we had a lot of mixed feelings about this. Mm-hmm. Although it did lead to very good things on one hand, at other times it just felt like busy work. Yeah. So yeah. again, that, that quantitatively trying to put it into a computer system, trying to click the right boxes, it's very frustrating. But I think anyone who works in in a hospital will tell you that that charting and documentation is the part that we all hate the most. And we spent probably about half the time doing it, which is frustrating. At least I did. I, I probably, you know, maybe not quite half the time, but it was a huge chunk of time defending what I was doing. Yeah, and we're really, really pushed to chart everything, and sometimes it's hard to know exactly what to put in the chart, but um, but just to, like you said, to the, like the numbers do matter of how many patients have we seen, how long have we spent with each one, um, because the administration, you know, has to have a way to to quantify our value, and it's not, like, we're not billable work. Like, the insurance doesn't get billed when a patient has a chaplain visit, like so many other departments in the hospital, and that's a big deal. And so they're constantly asking for us to come up with ways to um, to give them numbers and data. And um, one of the hospitals that I worked in, the, the chaplain supervisor was asked to look at patient outcomes and see, you know, how chaplain visits impacted better outcomes for patients, which was just terrible because it looked like, well, if a patient's seen by a chaplain, they're more likely to die. It wasn't causation, but there was a correlation that did not look good for us. But that's only because we see the worst of the worst so often. It just was not what we were looking for at all. And something that's never really recorded is the care of staff. You know, we don't have any way to really report that. And mm-hmm. that is such a huge part of the job, especially in the ER, I think. Provide a lot well, of care to staff. And especially for staff retention. Yes. And when you have um, fields like nursing where there's a high turnover, it costs a lot to train staff, to train them in a particular 
um, system and a particular, um, you know, uh, record keeping system like Epic or whatever. And, and then for people to get quickly burned out and move on to another job that that costs everybody that costs in the quality of care that patients are giving. And it also costs, you know, the, the corporate capitalist people. <laughs> right. <laughs> the money people. <laughs> Daddy, Daddy Warbucks or whoever. <laughs> there was a, there's a scene here where Green meets his wife um, at a cafe across from the hospital. I guess it's more like a little diner. And uh, it's when it dawns on them that they're in, they're in some trouble because... She has to leave unexpectedly for her job. He has a string of, of uh, days he's working. I'm assuming that the kid is staying with relatives over where the wife is, but I'm, I'm, I wasn't positive about that. So I don't think she's a worry at this point, but they're desperately, they're trying to connect so hard and it's just not working. And when that, that, Realization crashes over them. It's it's awful. I don't know how it ends up because it's my first time watching ER too. So I don't know whether they make it or not. And it, it just worries. Me. I felt like it's a really pivotal moment for their relationship in realizing that this divide is huge. Yeah. No. I'll, no Sarah spoilers. James, but <laughs> I think you should listen to your gut. <laughs> yeah, and that's very realistic. I mean it this kind of work is really hard on interpersonal relationships and, you know, um, medical residency especially is tough on marriages. <laughs> I just, I've seen, I have so many friends who are in, you know, a marriage with their second partner and their first marriage ended right after their partner came out of medical school. I have several friends that that's the case for. And, um, because it is, it's just really hard to find that time together um, and, and work on that relationship when you're just at the hospital all the time. Not to mention that she has a very demanding career as well in training yeah. to be a lawyer. So yeah, either one I mean, of those would be bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so speaking of relationships, I just wanted to talk Doug and Carol for a minute. Um, well, that's one of the big relationships in the early seasons of ER. And um, and just that moment that they have where they're working so well together, like as a unit um, to save this child and they know each other so well and have worked together and had a relationship for so long that they, there's a, just unspoken communication between them. You know, they both know exactly where the other one is and what the other one needs. And um, and so that really works well to save this kid. And um it ends up being a huge turn on for both of them and and they kiss. And what I really appreciated so much about this scene is that they're both kind of taken aback after it happens. And Doug apologizes and says, I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And she's like, well, you didn't do it alone. You know, It's not like she was kissing him back. And I was just like, good for Carol. But yeah, she, she acknowledges her part. Yes, she does. And she regrets it, I think. But, um, she makes it clear that it was her decision too, that she was an active participant in that. And then 
She immediately goes to see her boyfriend, takes him to an empty room to presumably have some sex and overcompensate for what just happened. But... Or they evidently, yes. they evidently cured her ambivalence over whether or not she wanted to move in with her boyfriend. <laughs> and in contrast, it, I think, you know, Doug had been looking for some form of pharmaceutical rep that he was into, mm-hmm. but then stops looking for her once he's had that passionate kiss with Carol. So it was kind of the opposite for him, where he thought that there was yeah. But, nur- but Nurse Hathaway, at least a conversation in the future. <laughs> Nurse Hathaway also, she says multiple times to him that, that one of his issues is that he wants what he can't have. Mm-hmm. Right. And that as soon as he gets it, he loses interest again. So I think that he's one of those men who just loves the pursuit. At least that's what she keeps saying over and over again. I don't know if she's trying to convince herself or what, because obviously, I mean, I, yeah, there's there's still issues there. And she knows it's not good for her, but I think that she's still in denial as well. Yeah, and she's still drawn to him, which can't really blame her. Gosh, 90s George Clooney. I crushed on him so hard. Anyway. I love all your comments about Clooney out here. <laughs> I, there's at least one every episode, and I, I wait for it. So thank you for not disappointing us, Stacey. Let me tell you how hard I crushed on 90s George Clooney. At one point in like, okay, 1998, I did study abroad in France. And like the following year, there was some rumor in the tabloids that George Clooney was engaged to some actress. My friends in France emailed me with condolences <laughs> like when they heard this. So, yeah, everybody worldwide knows my passion for 90s George Clooney. <laughs> Well, you know, I, it, it kind of reminds me that I've seen this kind of chemistry between uh, nurses, you know, doctors that work so well together in such a high adrenaline environment. There's something about that. I mean, that's a chemical change in your body. And mm-hmm. when you're working, you know, in sync with somebody and you just save somebody's life in a matter of seconds, you know, or minutes. And I think it's such a powerful thing that it can ignite romantic chemistry between people and it may be that they're not even compatible, but because they can work so well together in these high anxiety moments, there's some kind of passion in it, you know? And so I see that with colleagues that are in this environment, they sometimes have these little dates here and there, love that, things like that. They think they're on, on and off again. And because it's, there's so many emotions, so many chemicals running through our bodies, I think, in the ER. It's a real thing. Well, they've done studies that, um, you know, if you, ha- if you have a relationship that starts with like a very high stress situation, like a life or death, that, you know, you're likely to have a really strong bond, but in the end, it doesn't work because you just can't can't make it for the long run. It, you can't the, the boring that. moments right. don't don't work for you because yeah. you don't have enough in common. So I actually have read an article about that. But that doesn't mean it I mean of course it happens and of course it's really hard to resist sometimes. But yes. <laughs> that's there's that's usually you know, there's usually a story like that going around in VR, I would say. As chaplains we are we are we try to be very non judgmental listeners of situations like this. Mm-hmm. 
Uh-huh. Or this story gets awfully quiet when we're around. You know, it's oh, like yeah. you walk in and they're like, the gossip changes. Because <laughs> they're like, the Holy One has entered the premises, <laughs> you know. <laughs> we work really hard to be accepted, I think, and to not be the one that quiets the room, you know. But right. it's a challenge for us to, it, to it fit happens. in. Mm-hmm. Well, this goes back to the other conversation that we had a few weeks ago about the well-placed swear word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That can sometimes be really good spiritual care, but sometimes, you know, establishing that rapport with your colleagues, too, that you're not so dissimilar from them. You aren't. I mean, you're still a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And unholy at that. Unholy. <laughs> <laughs> we can be cool, too, or at least we try to be. Right. I don't. I don't know that I've ever been cool, but yeah, I suppose we do try to be. Speaking of speaking of which, there was at one point um, during the twenty-year-old's intubation that um, was it Benton that was calling the nurse "honey" and "darling." That was oh, his way yeah. of referencing her, and I wrote that down because I was so irritated. Oh, Maybe I it wasn't that. Benton. I don't know who that was, but that is unacceptable. Names, especially if it's a woman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you know, in a different scene, there was the reference of the parents as those people and things. You know, I mean, I think nowadays we're a little better about that. But parents have a place, you know, in these <laughs> high stress moments too. Even so, that was. Thing to hear. Yeah, I really wanted a chaplain to be there for those parents and <laughs> make them feel valued, even if they couldn't be. I mean, obviously, it's hard to have an extra body in the room when there's so much going on in a situation like that, that you don't necessarily need the parents hovering over the bed. But just to let them know that somebody was concerned about them, too, would have been nice. Right. I think, I mean, it may be anathema, but I mean, um, anachronistic, but it, that is like a, a patient satisfaction score um, issue. So if you can call in somebody like the chaplain who has time to care for people's um, selves while you're caring for people's bodies, then, you know, they're not sitting there in the waiting room or wherever saying, I have no idea what's going on with my child and it's been however long and you know, the more time that passes, the more they don't know, you know, the greater their fears are and the the more agitated they are, the more they could pop off. And um, if you have someone who's checking in with them and saying, like, they just went off to CAT scan um, and just kind of letting them know, like, being a good host, basically, mm-hmm. um, that really smooths things over and makes makes the whole situation as palatable as it can be. Well, plus they can they can tell you their side of the story. And occasionally yeah. that's helpful for the staff. Maybe they didn't get the whole story from, you know, the EMS people. Exactly. I mean, that's that was one of the things I was thinking is they said that this victim was was trapped under the boat. I mean there were it would have probably been some details that might have been helpful for them to understand. I mean I'm not saying they needed to stand 
in there in the ER room and give the whole story. But if there was someone to sit there with them to try and understand everything that happened, it could make it clearer for later on. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we are able to stand outside or, you know, away, away at the back of the room with family members, oftentimes we're able to put into user-friendly language some of the medical jargon that's being shouted around and that sort of thing and just um, give them just a brief explanation of what's going on just from our experience of being in the ER so much. And I think it, it helps just to have somebody kind of telling you what is going on in words that you can understand about somebody that you dearly love. And that's a very important role of the chaplain in those moments of crisis. Yeah, to be that kind of interpreter and to normalize some of it for them, like the things that we see happening every day in the ER that we would not give a second thought to are terrifying for them to see, you know, happening to their loved one. And just for us to be able to let them know that this is a, you know, a fairly normal thing that happens in a situation like this um, to, can help to restore some calm for them and to let them know exactly why this is happening. Um, like what the doctors are trying to accomplish with this thing that they're doing is really helpful. Um, so we are almost out of time. Does anybody have any other storylines they want to address? Any other patients or doctors that they want to talk about? I'd like to come back to Dr. Lewis for a moment. Um, it's her birthday, and she's all dressed up in a sexy dress. And her sister comes in and screws it up. And one of the things that, that they're discussing during their big argument is that they both came from the same household. It's that whole, like, nature versus nurture. It's almost that they're arguing over. How did one turn out to be the overachiever and the other one, you know, not be able to overcome these, these things that are going on inside of her? Um, I kept thinking that security needed to be called. I don't yeah. know that they've ever really talked about security here. Security is, is someone that the chaplains need to be aware of. However, the chaplains also need to guard against security um, being tools to shut down grief. So right. there's a difference, but there's appropriate grief and inappropriate grief. And when she got to the point where she was breaking the window, I mean, it was, it was a few minutes before that that I started saying out loud, somebody call security. <laughs> but again, like I said, she's emotionally overpowered by her sister. And it's just heartbreaking um, watching that. But I really thought that it was interesting the way that they talked about the way that they both came from the same household. Mm -hmm. Anyone have favorite moments or any last comments? I really appreciated um, Carter's little celebration at the end. Um, and regardless of whether or not he to flirt with Lewis or not, that sort of um, end of the day, like it's been a perfect day sense of like, you know, um, I did this, um, this lumbar procedure, it went well, whatever, you know, your day has been when things have really gone well again and again and again. Um, 
gosh, those kinds of days, especially when you spend so much of your work bearing witness to deep grief and unimaginable loss, um, when you have those days where, you know, one visit after another um, has gone just exceptionally well, it gives you so much wind in your sails for countless other days of tragedy. Mm-hmm. Very well At least that's said. been my experience. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Obviously, that has to be true for others, not just, you know, our discipline, because why else would we keep doing this, and why would they keep coming back to the ER? Right. And I was, and I was teasing Carter, but I do see this as a turning point in both his confidence and his maturity um, as a doctor, and to realize that, you know, he did this thing. That was that was a big deal to him, and and now he has the confidence to be able to share this champagne and um, talk about the real things with someone that before he might not have had a conversation, a real conversation. With. Um, one of my favorite moments, and it was kind of a funny one, was just when the nurse Hale storms into the men's room to confront Dr. Benton um, about handing off the patient to Carter because this is a, a young man who is important to her. She said she was his babysitter since he was four years old. And this is someone that she loves and cares about. And she wants Dr. Benton to be sort of a role model for him in hopes that he can live up to the potential that she sees in him and stay out of gangs that are in the neighborhood. And, um, Halei just reminds me of so many nurses that I've worked with. Just very, you know, nothing is going to get in her way when she cares about somebody. And, um, you know, the the power differential between her and the doctors means nothing. And no barrier is going to stand in her way. She's going to advocate and stand up for her patients, her family, whoever it is that she's fighting for. And I love that. And that's the second African-American nurse. There was one last episode as well who really stands up for her patients. and has the doctors question their assumptions. And I love that. Yeah, I do too. And I think that's true to life. Nurses are awesome. Absolutely. Love our nurses. Yes. And um, we also love our listeners. Thank you all so much for being here. And Sarah Jane, Carrie, and Deborah, thank you for being here, um, having a great conversation. So glad that my voice held out despite laryngitis. Um, Listeners, we hope that you'll be back with us next week to talk about two more episodes of ER. Bye. ER Chaplains Watching ER is produced at Top 5 Studios by my talented husband, Will Lawton. Music for the show is provided by our band, Rogue 2. You can hear some more of our great original songs at Rogue 2, that's T-W-O dot rocks. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app so other listeners can find us. Let us know your thoughts about the show on Twitter at chaplains underscore ER or comment on our Facebook page at chaplains watching ER. You can learn more about the hosts and find show notes for each episode on our website, chaplainswatching.net. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Stacy N. Sargent. That's S-E-R-G-E-N-T. I blog about hospital chaplaincy, step parenting, and other stuff at stacyandsargent.com, where you can also find links to get my book, Being Called Chaplain, How I Lost My Name and Eventually Found My Faith. Join us right here next week for more insightful conversations about ER.